those nights when one drink with the girls turns into a bottle, but you need your car for brunch the next day. There's pickup. Or at Friday work drinks, where you don't want to leave your car with expensive tools at the pub. There's pickup. Don't miss out on the fun. Get a pickup. Simply book on our app, and we'll pick you up to drive you and your car home. Two drivers arrive, one drives you home in your car, and the other driver follows. Download the pickup app today. That's PKUP, and wake up worry free. Jack LeBrock. Hi, I'm David Reynolds, and you're listening to Inside Supercars. From the racetracks across Australia, and here's Inside Supercars. Welcome to Inside Supercars. Uh, Tony Whitlock here, and I'm with Jason Bright. Now, we're going to cover a whole bunch of subjects here with Jason today, but we're going to start off with how we got started in the motor racing business, and probably of... The drivers in the paddock who I've known since the early 90s or mid 90s, your parents are probably the most high profile without without being loud or boisterous or anything like that, but they've always been there for you. Ken and Josie Bright, tell us about where you started motor racing. My dad's very passionate about motorsport, all types of motorsport, and it's been his passion since he was a kid. And um, I guess I grew up with motorsport heroes from following him around, uh, rather than football heroes or anything else. So I, you know, I wanted to race like my heroes. So I've, I've been fortunate that you know my parents uh, have. have back that all the way you know my dad like I said loves motorsports so he was he was more than happy to go to the go-kart races on weekends uh, and you know support me in that way. Originally you lawn way are you? Yeah so they uh, we grew up in Latrobe Valley so yep. uh, Newborough um, and I really only going to go-karts when the club formed down there uh, which was the Gippsland go-kart club um, which was 1998. Okay, were you a, a country kid? Did you grow up in, in a country town or? Uh, well, it's a small town. I mean, I think there's, you yeah. know, between Newborough and Mowie, there's 20,000 people. Right. Um, there's probably only about five, 6,000 in Newborough. So it was a small country town, but, um, you know, I spent a lot of time down here racing, obviously, you know, through, uh, you know, through the early, late 80s, early 90s. Okay. So go-karting was big. Yeah, I mean, go-karting is great. Like, I think as far as motorsport goes, it's it's as pure a racing as, you know, you do. And, um, you know, I, you learn all of your craft in go-karts. You know, I, I learned to, you know, prepare my own uh, machinery, I guess, a, a bit through go-karts. Um, but it was still a big stepping up. You know, learning those skills to, to prepare race cars. Now, one, one of the things that you very quickly showed yourself in Formula Ford, um, and what year was the first year you were there? Uh, 1992 was the first year we bought a, um, both my dad and I were made redundant from the SEC and got a bit of a package. So, so we how, went and how bought were a, you there? I uh, went and bought a Formula Ford. I was uh, 19. Yeah, okay. so I wasn't wasn't super young, but um, yeah, bought a former Ford, and and uh, it was an '86 Van Diemen that, that we bought from I think it was Matthew Howard up in Sydney, and you know, I really had a lot of learning to do, and you know I was sort of 
thrown in the deep end a little bit because I didn't know how to prepare a car and there were some tense moments between Dad and I because neither of us really knew what we were doing. And He hadn't actually raced. No. 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 My dad raced carts in the 60s just, you know, casually, but, I, you know, never really, you know, probably only did it for a couple of years. Yeah. Um, you know, we, we neither of us were ever involved in a, in a race team to sort of learn anything that you need to do. And so we had a hell of a lot of learning to do in Formula Ford, you know, about preparing race cars and, and um, you know, trying to do state level that first year and made some mistakes. But I think, you know, what was good for me was, you know, I, I did have to sort of learn it all myself and, and you know, preparing, preparing a, a race car for the first time. And, you know, I think that probably helped me a lot through the rest of my career. So you, you went from the State Series to National? Yeah, I did a, did the State Series in 92 in the Van Diemen and then nationally the year after we drove um, the very well, one of the very early Spectrum 05s with Michael Borland. And it, it started off well. We had some sort of issues through the middle of the year and it just it wasn't really working for us. Um, you were running it yourself? No, it wasn't. We, we were running it out of Michael's oh, factory, okay. and yep. you know, Michael was was you know I was sort of working in the factory because I did I finished my apprenticeship as a fitter and turner, so I was sort of helping Mike sort of make parts for cars that he was sort of selling and Formula Bs and simulators because he was hooked up with John Crook as well, and and uh, I was sort of down there um, helping you know, a lot of the time when sort of when it was possible between. Also doing a, you know, I was working for Skilled at the time um, on a casual basis. So I was, but I was sort of also on the, on the machines down, helping Mike sort of build cars and, and stuff. So learn a lot through Mike about, you know, running a Formula Ford at a, the next level again. And, um, but yeah, unfortunately, so the competitiveness wasn't really there. So we ended up uh, buying a, a 93 Swift towards the end of that year and did the Formula Ford Festival at Winton in the Swift. And, yeah. and that was probably the first time that we were competitive at a national level. I think I think we got a podium Steve Rich, to Steve Richards that weekend, um, which, like I said, that was sort of a good step up from where we had been running. You had a fairly fast track room because, you know, you didn't have a long time. And I, and I suppose a lot of drivers of that time did that same sort of thing. We it wasn't long before you were in a Formula Holden, and you know she's a, a fairly different beast to a go kart. Yeah, well, that, that felt like a, a huge step up from Formula Ford, you know, which it is. You know, it's a big step up to a yeah. Formula Holden. You know, we're, it was. It did seem to go pretty quickly. You know, when you when you look back at it, because you know the year after, um, you know, we did a full year in that Swift in '94, and then. 95, we drove the Van Diemen and won the championship and we were in a Formula Holden before the end of the year Yeah, um, at the Adelaide Grand Prix. So, now You've driven a number of brands of Formula Ford. That's typical of your yeah. career because you, you move around a lot of equipment, don't you? Yeah, we, I have, for sure. But, um, you know, and it wasn't – I think back then the drive to have in Formula Ford was the factory Van Diemen drive. Yeah. Um, and – you know, at the time when we were sort of moving out of the uh, out of the spectrum, you know, there was a Swift available, and we knew that it was a competitive car. But you know, going into the '95 season, being offered the sort of Van Diemen 
seat, you know, along with Weber, which was the first time that ever sort of looked after two drivers here in Australia. You know, uh, that, who that was, was the one. Oh, I ran the I ran mine myself. Okay. So my dad um, had a little workshop. So we shared a workshop in Trafalgar. You know, it was just a tin shed basically, and I prepared the '95 Van Diemen in there. Um, and yeah, we, we basically just ran out of there. I, I sort of prepared it during the week, and and then going away to a race meeting, it'd be my dad, um, a mate of mine, Les Collins, um, and my uncle. You know, would sort of travel to the race meetings and and you know do the race meetings, you know, all in the sort of Commodore wagon, and then drive home again. So yeah, it was good times. Like I I really enjoyed. That year, I, I sort of still rate one of the, that that year as one of the best of my career because you know it was a good championship. There was a lot of good drivers and cars, and um, and you know I felt like you know we did all the work ourselves and earned the championship, and that was that was pretty satisfying. You laid a foundation then, and I'm not saying this to you know pump up your ego or anything, but you laid a foundation because your cars were always well presented. You always seem to have good sponsorship, not mm. not masses about, but yeah. the right amount yeah. and good names so that, you know, when people would sort of look and go, oh, that's a such and such car, that was obviously part of your background, your learning. Uh, it was. I mean, you know, yeah, I had to learn all of that, you know. Finding sponsorship was, once again, you know, I did my apprenticeship as a fitter and turner. I wasn't, you know, out there knowing how to find sponsorship. I was lucky, uh, and I think this is probably one of those things with motorsport you've got to be in the right place at the right time and be doing the right things but also and know when to be there at the yeah, right place at the right time yeah and, and I was you know I was in the right place as far as you know running competitively in, a, in the Swift to to be presented with the Van Diemen Drive which you know presented itself to be associated with the Valvoline money through Gary Rogers. And, yeah. and, you know, I had also been chasing Skilled, who I was working for, about being a sponsor as well. And, and it was probably the Skilled relationship which took me further than anywhere because, you know, I, I got that on my Formula Ford and they wanted to progress through to, you know, Formula Holden with me. And and then, you know, they followed me for years through Supercars they in America. They were pages. Yeah, they were. And they were great. You know, they... Yeah. They, um, you know, they're, they're, they're a great employer, but also, you know, they're great to me as a, as a sponsor, you know, to help me make those steps, which you have to make to be able to be seen by a, you know, supercar team or, you know, or have the ambition to go overseas. Yeah. So then Formula Holden. Formula Holden was great. You know, I, the, the, the cars were awesome. You know, I, I was obviously with the, uh, the best team at the time, Piranha, um, you know, and once again, in not in 1996 because I was living in America, but in 97 I you know worked. I was the only employee, full-time employee in the race team. You know, I basically lived at Malcolm Ramsey's house and um, and you know worked in the workshop. After each race meeting, I'd strip each of the cars. Uh, and who was your then, teammate there? Uh, Brent. In '97, yeah. um, in '96 it was Stokel, yeah, uh, and I was also racing the Formula Ford 2000 in America in '96. So, um, so I was just sort of flying in for those meetings that year. But '97 was great. I you know, like I said, strip all of the cars after the race meetings, and and then on the you know weekends, you know the the rest of the team would come in from their other jobs and. 
be putting the cars together for for the next race meeting. Um, and then on the race weekends, I you know obviously just be driving. But you know, I, it was it was good because I you know felt like we were sort of part of that very you know big part of that championship as well. Being you know working the team. Now, what year did you win the Formula Holden? That year, 97. 97. Yeah. yeah, I remember being at Malabar that day. Mm. Um, and uh, it's an extraordinary thing to be competing in two championships on opposite sides of the world. How did that come about? Uh, well, the 96, yeah, I was, wanted to obviously, you know, I had ambitions to race in America. IndyCar was the target. IndyCar was the target. I mean, F1's always the target, but I, I always saw America as my sponsors were a little bit more... American biased, you know, with Valvoline and um, the more opportunities in America. I saw a lot, a lot of guys go to Europe and, you know, they do Formula Ford, Formula 3, Formula 3000. And even if they won the Formula 3000 championship, the best they would get in Formula 1 was an Ocella or a Bernardi. And they weren't stepping into a Ferrari, a McLaren, a Williams or a Benetton. And whereas in, from America, you were seeing guys... You know, you could go there, do Atlantic's Indy Lights, get into IndyCar, and if you're a star in IndyCar, like Zanardi, Montoya, Andretti, they were stepping into Williams's, McLaren's, and yes. you know, whatever. So it was. I felt America. If if I got into an IndyCar, fantastic. If I ended up racing sports cars, something over there, great. If were outstanding over there and got to Formula One, at least you're going to be with the right teams. And that was so. That was sort of the the logic behind it a bit, you know. It, and it was it was going to it was probably a, a, would have been a cheaper route to F one than going through Europe, which you know for, at the time not many Aussies were making it through the steps in Europe to, to get, get to get to F one because yeah. of the cost. So um, so that that was sort of the the, the logic. Ninety six was a great year because I got to drive, you know. A bunch of test days. I got twelve race meetings in America, and I had six race meetings in Australia. And you know, being in a car that much, you learn a lot. You know, similar and, to what and, I did. But being very competitive as well. Yeah, exactly. I mean, I, I you know, Formula Four two thousand was great. Like I, the oval racing was from Australia. You, you it's very easy to underrate the oval racing, <laughs> and um, and the oval racing was. Insane and so so much better than what television gives it justice for. You learn so much more about car setup racing on ovals than what you do on road courses, and you can't drive around the problem. So you've got to get the car set up right. Yeah, one of the um, people I've been lucky enough to meet was Alan McCall, mm. who was Jim Clark's mechanic at Indianapolis when yep. Jim first went there. And Alan's told me, and I sat in his lounge room in New Zealand and Auckland. And he took me through and talked about, change, you know, just turning a spring abutment mm. and, you know, losing four miles, <laughs> you know, and all yeah. that sort of stuff that just it, insane. It, it was, you know, oval racing was awesome. I mean, the Formula Ford 2000 oval racing was great because we raced on a sort of myriad of different ovals like, and tested on a bunch of different ovals too. So, you know, everything from a one-mile oval at Phoenix to a – we tested on sort of one-third mile ovals and, you know, and raced on ovals like um, Indianapolis Raceway Park, which is you know it's got two sort of is that different Putnam types of Park? banking. No, that's another place. Different again, yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, yeah no, it's it, 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 and you learn a lot about, like I said, car setup and aerodynamics and 
making a car work in dirty air and it, it, I felt like that gave me a lot of you know really good experience racing on ovals and the different types of ovals. So about then you got the phone call that was unexpected I imagine the Stone Brothers? Uh, yeah it was, 90, it was 97 I, I, I mean it was one of those things where I had you know won a Formula 4 championship won a Formula Holden championship and and it sort of didn't really, you know, there was still there, there was no supercar teams knocking on the door. No. Um, Craig Lowndes obviously, you know, broke through, broke through, and, yeah. and opened up the door for a lot of young guys. And I, because Stephen Richards was racing in Queensland in the Gary Rogers two liter car, yep. I got the opportunity in Tassie to drive the Commodore, yes. and that. That one weekend opened more doors for me than anything else I'd done in my career, and I felt like I did it's a, a wet really. One too. I felt like I did a really crap job of it. You know, yeah. it was um, it was one of those situations where you know GRM at the time weren't a you know super competitive team. No, um, no. but they were on the right tire, which was the Bridgestone, and um, and it was wet, and the Bridgestone was a lot better than the Dunlop and the Yokohama in the wet. There was only four other cars, I think, on the Bridgestone, which were the two HRT cars and the two Glenn Seaton cars. Yeah. And I remember, you know, in the first practice session, you know, we were sort of P nowhere. And then um, the second time I came in the pits, I was like P6 and it was like, huh, okay. And then we actually had that pace all weekend to run sort of fifth or sixth, which would have been fantastic, except, you know, I kept on making mistakes and going to the back of the field and then passing all these sort of guys that have, yeah, I was first time I'd ever driven a tin top. I'd done, you know, a couple of laps at Calder before we went there and, and it rained the whole, entire weekend. Yeah. And they were two day race meetings, you know, so I was like practice straight into qualifying and you know, making a few mistakes here and there, but I was passing a lot of guys, you know, that I probably shouldn't have been passing, but I was on the right tire. And and again, was that you know, Gary obviously knew you through the Valvoline connection and things like that. Yeah. And yeah. did he just make the phone call to you and said, Would you like to? Yeah, he, he called and said, you know, Steve's obviously got two commitments and two leaders on in Blakeside at the same time. So, you know, would I be interested in driving the Commodore at Tassie? And yeah, it was of course I was gonna do it. And but like I said, it opened up more doors. I mean, Gary, you know, the year after Steve Richards was going to uh, Europe to yep. drive the Premier over there yep. with Nissan, and and um, so Gary offered me the drive here in the Commodore. And um, at the same time, Stones were keen on doing something, you know, buying out Alan Jones and yep. starting Stone Brothers, and um, you know, so. I, Obviously got the drive at Sandown with Stones because Scott Pruitt couldn't do Sandown, but he could do the Bathurst. So uh, did Sandown. We finished third. You know that day once again it rained pretty much all weekend, and um, I finished third with Alan Jones and the Pertec guys were at the podium podium and handed me a Pertec flag to hold up on the podium, and that was what started the Pertec relationship. Basically, yeah. I mean you know I was. Once again, it was sort of right place, right time. AJ didn't even go to the podium. He couldn't be bothered. Um, so, you know, when it came time for Stones to buy out um, Alan and, you know, try and find the sponsorship, obviously Komatsu went with, with Alan to Longhurst and, and um, you know, the Pertec guys, 
you know, back Stone Brothers. Yeah. That's where that sort of relationship is. It's an interesting colour combination of yellow and blue that feature <laughs> in your life quite a bit. Yeah, skill, skill and per -tech, per -tech, yeah. task force. Yeah. Yeah. Interesting. <laughs> so, uh, I mean, Ross and Jimmy were, were open-wheel guys, so they were totally attuned to the idea of you doing Because there hadn't been a lot of that before then. But for Lounsey, you know, there was, you know, touring car guys and yeah. open-wheel guys. Yeah. And I suppose that that's partially now seen the demise in Australia of open-wheel racing, really. I mean, not the demise, but it didn't have the clout that it did have in your day. No, for sure. I mean, you know, you used to have to do Formula Ford and, you know, there were there was a period there where Formula Holden was, was a great sort of feeder into to supercars and the sort of development series has sort of meant that a lot of guys just sort of skip their way to that as quickly as they can and, you know, McLaughlin was a... Yeah, you know, absolutely. Classic, you know, he didn't yeah. even do anything other than go straight to to the development series, and you know, I, I don't know whether that's a good thing. You know, it's hard to say. I mean, he's certainly bucked the trend there a little bit. You know, I I feel like most you know budding or aspiring racing drivers can learn a lot in you know that progression of go karts, Formula Ford. You know, formula hold, and that you know, some a lot of families can't afford to j jump straight into yeah. a development series car and throw it at the wall a couple of times and repair it. You know, yeah. and that's that sort of weeds out a lot of the guys that could potentially have done Formula Ford, Toyota '86 or whatever, and then bring those sponsors through to a, a development series drive. Yeah. And I don't think that's a good thing. I think you know, you, you don't end up with the sort of the same types of drivers in supercars. You know, if you've got guys that are sort of progressing and then the supercar teams are talent-picking from Super 2. So uh, you're then at Stones, and I, I actually remember vividly when uh, Ross was taken to court or mediation by Tony Longhurst for their settling of their rather nasty... He rang me, um, Ross rang, to get some stats, and what he wanted to do was demonstrate um, the speed of their cars... And I remember actually compiling statistics on your racing career, which I'd actually think I'd put together. Yes, I did at some stage later on. Um, and your manager, I can't remember his name now, IMG guy. Um, From Australia? Yeah. Uh, Christian Oplis. No. Oh, Mark Roworth. Yeah, Mark yeah. Roworth. Yep. Yep. When he rang me and asked me for, for some stats on your career, um, for your HRT resume. And that was the media all lighting up about how, right, he's off to IndyCar, he's going, he's going. And suddenly I'm going, don't think so. I don't think the IndyCar guys are really. Yeah. But anyway, the stat I put together, I remember vividly that, that in those days there were 11 rounds in the championship and that when she, there were 22 practice sessions and 11 qualifying sessions. And of those 33, I think something like 25 times you were in the top 10, in the top five, mm. which was the stat. You were incredibly quick. Yeah, I mean, I, like we had, I enjoyed that period at Stones too. You know, it was, it was like a small team punching above their weight. They hadn't yet presented their credentials. No, no. And, you know, HRT were obviously the dominant force and, and um, you know, we were sort of trying to um, match them. We, I, 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 I know that sort of 98 year, I felt like we stood second or third on the podium to those guys, guys a lot of times. Yeah. You know, didn't crack it for a win in the championship, but, yeah. you know, obviously... Um, managed but you had a lot that. of speed. Yeah, yeah. And, and, you know, I felt like we were the front-running Ford team that year and, you know, it was only HRT that were 
yeah. that had a, had a bit over us. Were there some finger problems there at Stones? Because it was a young team that was just learning, really, wasn't it? Oh, no. I mean, the, I mean, it was obviously it come from those couple of years as pack leader. Um, you know, the staff were all pretty settled there. You know, and and uh, I, I felt like you know it was it was before Ford increased their involvement considerably yeah. at the start of the 2000s, and the team took a pretty good step up there. I mean, we we're sort of we we're really just a one car team. They were also running Larco's car, yeah. but we sort of ran a little bit independent. You know, we both had our own trucks, and um, it was a you know I felt like it was a good environment, really good environment. Mm-hmm. Like you know. Everyone got on well and, and um, you know, had their head down to, to do a good job. And, you know, Ross and Jimmy, you know, they're, they're races. Like, that was the good thing about, you know, driving for them is, you know, they're races. They, they always wanted the best of, you know, equipment and knew where to spend the money. And, and so that, like, that's the sort of team that you enjoy being involved in. At this time, you know, you roll in into 99 and the big one happens. You win Bathurst. 98. 98. 98, so, we won that Yeah, first, yeah. yeah. Um, And so life changes at that moment. I mean, for instance, <laughs> that couldn't have been a better timing in terms of a Ford relationship. It was, well, I mean, that was the funny thing. Like, I, yeah, it was great timing, you know, awesome to pretty much win it at our first attempt there. And, you know, obviously everything went right on the day. Um, to, you and Steve to, knew each other incredibly yeah, well. Steve I'd raced against for years and, you know, he did an awesome job. You know, everything went right on the day and we got to stand on the top step. First time Ford had won in a few years and, um, you know, so it was, yeah, it was good times. I, I actually, you know, wanted to try and cement a, a long-term career with, with Ford at that time. You know, and, you know, I, when I look back at what I was sort of offering him, it was probably a bit crazy, but you're just trying to cement yourself a career in in the sport, but um, you know, and they at, in at nine in ninety nine, Ford weren't interested. You know, they were like, no, we don't. We sponsor teams, not drivers. And and it was sort of it was from their response that I went, well, I'm going to have to go going back to America. Then and that was that was sort of the a little bit the driver of it to go. You know, sort of frustrated me a little bit. You got Holden over here, you know, blazing along. Supporting the drivers and the teams, up and, their drivers enormously, and yeah. you know Ford were had their blinkers on at that stage. You know, two years down the road, Ford changed their tune for five or six years, but um, you know at that time they were you know not really that interested in supercars, and and sort of gave me a feeling well, I might as well have another crack at America at that time. Chris Jewell actually gave me a copy of your career document, which was one of the most impressive documents in terms of the planning and. And as uh, he pointed out to me at the time, that you know, it, it nearly got there. So, yeah, it nearly got there. Oh, you know, there's not a lot of things that would, yeah, you, 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 in your career, you sort of come across like there's heaps of sort of forks in the road and different decisions that could have ended up, you know, very differently. Yeah. But, you know, I'm not one for sort of dwelling on whether a decision was the right one at the time or not. You know, yeah. I make, you sort of make those decisions based on the facts that you've got at the time and, and what you think will be the best at the time or the career choice that will give you the most pleasure as well, yeah. you know. Um, and so, yeah, I, you know, I made some decisions that, you know, at times were very risky, you know, for, as a career, but I also did it because, you know, 
I've got ambitions or or uh, desires that I wanted to sort of see in my career rather than just make a living out of it. Okay. So, so you, you've got a toehold in America with the Formula 4 2000, but then you've obviously met people that have given you that uh, edge to get into somewhere more. Yeah, well, like I said, I sort of 99 and even 98, I was still sort of had feelers in America because I wanted to get back over there and try and get back get into IndyCar and the, the sort of the profile that winning Bathurst gives you gave me a bit more of an opportunity to find the sort of sponsorship that you oh, need. Oh you're faster than Scott. <laughs> yeah, a little bit little bit more profile to find the sponsorship that you need to do, you know, yeah. to go overseas. So um so I started putting a lot of effort in to get back over there and um talking to teams about trying to get a test in Indy Lights car, etc. and um, you know, whether it was a Gold Coast or I went over for a weekend, um, went to Von Tanner in 99 to meet with a couple of teams and, and try and line up a test. And from that, I got a test in the Pac West uh, Indy Lights car. And so I went over there at the end of 99 to, to do a test in that car. Obviously, Scott Dixon tested as well. And having he'd already done a full season over there in 99. Um, and, yeah, it's, you know, Stefan Johansson managing him, who was based over there and really close to a lot of the teams. So he ended up getting the Pac West drive, but the team manager from Pac West called Doricott Racing, who were the championship winners a year before. John Doricott, isn't it? Uh, Bob Doricott. Bob. Um, called Bob and said, you know, you really should give this guy a test. Like So So then I had Doricott contact me and ask me to go over there for a test, which I did at the end of um, 99 as well. And the test at the road course at um, Firebird went really well. They asked me to go to an oval test two days later with, at um, Phoenix International Raceway, which was a probably one of the craziest days I've had because it was so fast, you know, compared to racing a supercar. Yeah. And, you know, jumping back in open wheel, it was difficult, let alone going to an oval um, where the average speed was, I think it was 156 mile an hour. Super fast on, a, on an oval again after driving tin tops for a couple of years, but the test went really well. And um, when I was dropping the engineer off at the airport, he, you know, the team had been trying to get him for a couple of years, and I said to him, you know, what are your plans? And he he said, um, well, I'll, I'm telling the team if you're driving for the driving the car, then I'll engine, I'll, I'll work for the team, and that that's pretty much got me the drive. Mm-hmm. Like okay. I, you know, from there. Um, you know, I tried to find what sponsorship we could, but, you know, there the was sort of a deal where, um, you know, whatever money I could put to it, you know, if I continued on racing in IndyCar and, you know, then were, there was sort of a percentage of my earnings that would go back to Bob Doricott, but they were really keen to get Gerald Tyler as the engineer and it got me the, the seat. We're talking here with Jason Bright on Inside Supercars and we'll be back in a minute uh, talking more about America. Each week, join the Inside Motorsport team as they look at all the news from across Australia and around the world. Yeah, I mean, it, it means a lot. You know, through the years, a lot of reference this race is one of our majors. 600 miles around here is no easy task. Uh, we were able to beat the two levels to the boys and, uh, and meet Anthony Bigley in the final, which uh, we were able to um, take the win off him. So, it was, uh, yeah, it was a great weekend for the uh, Rapsdale family. Inside Motorsport broadcast on community radio and online at sportradio.com.au. Welcome back to Inside Supercars. I'm with Jason Wright, and we're discussing in America racing there in the late 90s and uh, the way in which it was for you running in IndyCar lights. Yeah, it was, um, you know, 
once again, tell a us about great the car experience. a bit first. Yeah, so they were they were very similar to an F three thousand car in Europe at the time. Um, that four hundred and twenty five horsepower Lola carbon fibre tub V six. Uh, yeah, V six, which was a very similar engine to the Holden engine in yep. Formula Holden. Um, Buick engine. You know, great category. Had good numbers, really good teams. You know, very professional teams. The I guess the beauty of it is we were running all the rounds. We're running with IndyCar events, 12, 12 events for the year. Did a lot of testing. Like you know, testing. I think you could do twenty days a year, and you wow. pretty much used all of them. So you know, we tested on all different types of circuits, from ovals to some of the good and bad road courses over there. The the calendar was a mixture of street tracks, ovals and road courses and good road courses like Mid-Ohio. So it was a you know, great experience working with one of the best engineers or the best engineer I've ever worked with. Gerald Tyler was you know, a great experience again and learning a lot on the ovals. So you had any contact with him? In yeah, the, yeah, yeah. I, I actually tried to get him as an engineer here in supercars. He came out to a couple of supercar right. races when I, start, when I was starting Brytech. And he sort of nearly came out here to run the whole sort of operation for me. Yeah, um, yeah if, if the conversion rate was probably a little bit better, it would have been a bit easier. But he was very interested too. Like, you know, I, I visited him a couple of times and I've been back to America since as well. But yeah, he was his experience and, and you know, what I learned from him was huge. And just really good to, to, to work with. That was 12 races a year. Are you doing any other? Oh, I mean, that was, that was probably the busiest year of my career. So I did the 20 test days and 12 events with Indy Lights. I did um, a test day with Dick Johnson and then Bathurst with Radisic. Yep. Um, I did the IndyCar testing and then the IndyCar race on the Gold Coast uh, with Dallapena. And then I did the race of a 1,000 years in the Panos and a test day for that as well. So When was that, December? Or? That was New Year's Eve okay. in Adelaide on the street circuit. So that was, that was by far the busiest year of my career racing in America and in Australia. But you know, the amount of events, the amount of time you were in a car, the amount of different circuits that I drove at. and So you, know, you learn a lot in years like that. Okay. How did the Gold Coast IndyCar ride? come up how did that eventually uh well i mean it sort of it came initially from you know when i was driving for stone brothers in 99 and trying to get to america to to do indie lights you know it was i was sort of img who were running the event at the gold coast at that time you know mark roworth and myself went and met with him and said you know to take this event to the next level it would be great if there was an aussie driver in it and so it sort of came from that um, you know, IMG and working with the Queensland government, you know, I brought some of my own sponsorship along as well. But, you know, IMG, the event, Queensland government were the ones that sort of funded that one weekend at the Gold Coast. But it was, um, there was limited teams that could sort of do it. You know, we, we were speaking to Carl Hogan, you know, they, they were available to sort of do it. But it ended up being Della Pena that we sort of landed with and, you know, me and my Gidley stepped out for a round. And was this a Lola or was it a Raynard? It was a Raynard, Raynard. yeah, Toyota engine. So it was it was good. I mean, big car, like, very big car. Hard tires. You know, took three laps to get them working around the Gold Coast. Yeah, you know, I I felt like the whole process went quite well, except it rained all weekend again. You know, it it pretty much rained all of practice. So we had one and a half hour practice sessions Friday and Saturday, and it rained 
all of practice. The track never dried out. And then Friday's quality, so there's a qualifying session each day, dry for qualifying, and they were my first laps of the Gold Coast in the dry. And then Saturday it rained all practice again, and then it was dry for qualifying again, but it was so windy and there was so much leaves and crap on the track no one went faster so we qualified 26 but most of the sessions were sitting around 15th or 16th um, out of 26 cars how much but we, it came down to my first laps in the dry yeah you know and in, in the friday qualifying session to determine my qualifying how much driving have you done on that car uh it was only one or two days at firebird okay. which is a very small road course yeah, you know, totally unlike yeah, totally unlike the Gold Coast. I mean, the top speed there was like 150 mile an hour, and you were doing 193 mile an hour at the end of the straight at Gold Coast. So, and there's plenty of runoff, and there's only about seven or eight corners at Firebird. You know, all the teams were advising us not to do the Gold Coast as my debut event, but it was the only event we could do. You know, yeah. with the the. The sponsorship and did the we government had, so. help the Queensland government? Did they? Yeah, they did, and you know, it was like I said, it was all about getting an Aussie in the event, and there hadn't been a, an Aussie in there for a while, and you know, an Aussie that I guess had a had half a profile in Australia after winning Bathurst, you know, and once once again, like you know, go forward five or six years, and you had you know, Team Australia, and you had KV Racing or whatever it was that yeah. had all this. Aussie involvement in it that probably would have made my transition to an IndyCar way easier. At the time, you know, IndyCar was, or Champ Car, was very strong. Like, you know, you had all of the major teams and sponsors in there. And it was a bit of a closed shop because they all wanted, they're all professional drivers. They wanted drivers, you know, it's hard to, when in that situation, it's hard to sort of break in to get a seat. Scott was sort of probably the only rookie going into the year after, after winning the Indy Lights Championship. And and stepping into the Pac West car, so it was it was very hard to sort of get into IndyCar as a as a rookie because eighty or ninety percent of the drivers were well established. You had Montoya and Jill DeFerrin, yeah. and, and in those situations, you got Marlborough and Target that want the big names. Yeah. So. As a um, a Latrobe Valley man, I've always seen you as somebody who is fairly relaxed and copes with the pressure well. But there must have been an enormous amount on you in that Queensland event. Uh, there was, yeah. I mean, I, I probably I put more pressure on myself in a lot of those situations you know there's like the outside pressures feel of nothing a lot of the time when you when you I guess you've got ambitions and you're a competitive person compared to the pressures that you put on yourself to do well and the disappointment that you feel on yourself if you do a bad job yeah I think I've never sort of felt like I suffer from the outside pressures you know sure. that much I, I and maybe I'm misreading the, the pressures that you do feel but I always feel like you know I'm, I put enough pressure on myself to to be competitive and do well and you know the disappointment as a competitive person when you don't do well I feel like you're not worried about what other people are thinking. Your next big jump was the HRT one, is that right? Mm, yeah, well, I, I was sort of lucky there once again. You know, Craig was leaving Holden Racing Team, so you know they were obviously looking for someone. I, I still had ambitions to race in America, and HRT signed me. So this is, in fact, on the back of it, Ford wanting to get involved in the sport, as you were talking about earlier. And so Craig was the one who benefited from that. Yeah. Um, even though it might have been started by the impetus of a '98 Bathurst win. <laughs> yeah. Well, that, yeah. That, you know, Craig was obviously jumping ship to Double O, and I, you know, Holden Racing Team were looking for someone. I was 
sort of still racing in America, had ambitions and trying to pull off an IndyCar drive for the year after. And um, and HRT offered me a contract where I signed it at Bathurst in 99, but had until, I think it was February the 15th, or it might have might have been January the 15th, but I think it was February the 15th, that if I got an IndyCar drive, I could go and pursue that still. Yes. If I didn't, then I had the Holden Racing Team drive. And, which, and the, the, you were with Mark Scaife, who's your teammate. Yeah, I mean, Pretty, which was still the, the you know, the, was the, the plum team, team yeah, in Australia, yeah. you know, and, you know, the whole operation, you know, expanded a lot over that couple of years with Kmart Racing and Team Brock and... And um, so it was, you know, it was a really good period. And you know, championship championships, too. You know, they won, the championship went, was going crazy at the time, yeah. which I put down to Channel 10 taking it on. Yeah. You know, Channel 10 took it on, created the home of motorsport, and the exposure that that gave the teams meant that there was sponsorship there to employ professional drivers. Yeah. And there was, like, this snowball effect for the next six years that I felt like Channel 10 created by the exposure that it was giving to supercars. Well, the thing is that your career um, paralleled the time when the championship went from being a driver-owner championship. I, I remember I did some stats at the time, and it's quite dramatic when you look at the average age of the mm. drivers, and you were part of that pack. That you know, when when I started about '94, it was about 40. Yeah. By you know, eight years later, it was 30, mm. and then um, it was another yeah. three or four years. It was extraordinary. It was crazy. I mean, and I remember trying to get into, you know, looking at touring car racing in the mid '90s, and it was a it was a very closed shop. You know, you had um, most of the drivers own their teams and even when I got into V8 supercars in 98 if you looked across the field there was no more than six semi-professional drivers you yeah. know it was it was pretty crazy like you either own the team like Dick Johnson and he employed John Bow you had Mark Scaife, Lowndes, Steve Richards you know or, or Barguana who was there beyond that it was most guys owned their Cito team and, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah Longhurst and Cito and yeah. you, know, you had Alan Jones who's professional but you could count on almost one hand the guys that you go yep that guy's driving professionally you know and it was and then you saw it you, know, you go sort of forward to 2005 and there was 35 cars on the grid and they were all professional. And that so those 35 cars on the grid, they were funded by sponsorship that was generated off the back of Channel 10's exposure. Yeah. I put it down to. And it was the sport was extremely healthy in, in that regard. You're, you're then going to um, FBR or ProDrive? Well, yeah, I went I went from HRT to Team Brock, you know, yeah. PWR. Um, had ambitions to, you know, have my own team. So I was, you know, I had talks with Holden. They were going to support me in a one-car Team, which I was either going to sort of use a Walkinshaw car or a PMM car, and I had the sponsorship from Fujitsu, holding money, and had a budget to run one car. and And I'd I'd met Kevin Barrett, who was the managing director of Caterpillar on a flight, Canberra, um, a couple of years before, and and he was he tried to um, talk me into going um, to drive the Caterpillar car. A couple of years before, and this I was is the like, one out of Perth? No, no, that okay. was 
that was West Track that was sponsored by. But right. he was he was oh, um, yeah, yeah. he was sort of Caterpillar, and Caterpillar was sort of bringing that sort of sponsorship under their own wing, and and I'd sort of tried to talk him into doing something with Team Brock at the time. Um, you know that that was going to be a competitive team, and we had sort of all the, all the right ingredients, and they they decided to go with um, Lowndes and FPR at the time. And so at the end of 2004, I was sort of, you know, keen to go and start my own team and still had, you know, I had a triple eight were offering a drive, but I was sort of also just keen on starting my own team. Who, who was at triple eight then? Uh, it was Radisic and... Max Wilson. Yeah, gotcha. And they off. They were trying to get me to go there. In, oh, that's right. They were trying to get me to go there in two thousand and four. Paul had been one of the architects of bringing Triple Eight here, and then mm. he was. They, 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 were, they were trying to get me in two thousand and four, and you know, I didn't. I, that, that was trying to get me out of my contract to go there in two thousand and four. But right. um, yeah, I I sort of didn't do that. Wanted to go start my own team. Had all everything lined up with Holden like, and Fujitsu to do it. Kevin Barrett sort of approached me to go and drive for FPR, and initially I sort of turned him down and said, "No, I'm already doing this." I went and met with them, and they they put together a deal between Ford and Caterpillar that sort of had a five-year plan to it. If I did two years at Pro Drive and help them get on track, then I'd move to my own team for years three, four, and five with good forward money and Caterpillar would likely move with me even though they wouldn't sign at that time. Which I, you know, as a five-year plan, it was sort of too good to knock down. I, the proviso for me to go to FBR was that they got Phil from Team Rock to go with me. Yes, that's what I was going to say. You'd actually connected there yeah. first time. And, and that was important because having worked with Phil for the couple of years and, you know, we worked really, really well together, having someone on the ground at... Pro Drive, or you know, at the time was, or FPR was very important to speed, you know, fast track a lot of the stuff that we needed to do there. And you know, it took, it still took twelve months, but you know, heading into two thousand six, we had a pretty good car, and and um, and it just got better and better as the two years went on. But I had to, at the end of two thousand six, even though we we're winning races and very competitive and looking good for 2007. If I didn't move to my own team in 2007, move to Brytech, you know, I would have lost Fujitsu and, and everything else that we'd worked pretty hard for. So, you know, so I had to move to, to my own team and, you know, I felt like everything that I needed to do at FPR as far as getting them to where they wanted to be, we'd sort of done anyway. You've driven for some of the best teams, you know, in the land. Is this one that your time that you just stands out that that was so much better? Um, they're, they're all different, you know. I I like I enjoyed driving the Stone Brothers because they were races, you yeah. know, and we were punching above our weight. And I, I enjoyed driving at PWR because once again we were sort of small team. Yeah, we had you know pretty good equipment, but we were punching above our weight. Um, you know that year at Pro Drive two thousand and Five and six. Is John Russell still at time? He was still there. He designed the 2006 car. Right. But he wasn't day to day in there anymore. Yeah. Um, and so that it was that that was you know a fun period because we went from a team that was had good budget but very bad performance to 
the team that everyone wanted to drive for after that. And so it was great watching that team evolve, you know, the HRT era and the amount of fans they had and how competitive we were was fantastic. I enjoyed driving for my own team. I felt like with that was just getting better and better all the time and if it wasn't for the GFC that, you know, we would have had the Ford support that, you know, that was sort of in the contract. We would have had, um, you know, continued support from all the sponsors. But, you know, it, it was a tough time, you know, for everyone. Like the sponsors, you know, were, were pulling out left, right and centre. Um, and, of course, you embarked on the, the rally program as well. And, and we did that once again to, you know, improve our relationship with Ford. You know, they were running it in-house at that point out of uh, Campbellfield and, and, you know, we're looking for someone to run it for them. You know, we built those two Fiestas and, and you know, built the, the first Ford S2000 cars in the world and, yeah, it was a lot of fun. Re sort of connected myself with Pertec and um, that was a oh, great little project. the rally car. Mm. Yeah. No, that was, a, that was a great little project. Yeah. But, um, you know, when it was just around that same time with the GFC... Ford, you know, withdrew well over one and a half million dollars in sponsorship from the team um, that was, you know, meant to be coming to us. It was contracted, but, you know, the, it didn't come. And so, you know, all of that, you know, the way that we'd gone about the team and, you know, all of the manufacturing and in-house engines and dynos and all of the CNC machines, that was all based around the five-year commitment that we had and the world had a fairly big change and you know not, it couldn't happen in that way so but it was based on those the the commitment that was there um at the you know at the time in hindsight you know we if you look at how Crookshank was doing it as a customer and how I was going to do it as a customer with Holden that would have been a much easier you know pill to swallow but when you've got all of this machinery and in a certain way that doing it because Ford wanted to have another manufacturing house um, like ProDrive and Triple Eight, that was what we had to build. Yeah, it was, but it was still fun. You know, I, that's exactly the way that I want to do it. If I, if you've got the budget and you can manufacture, build, paint everything in the one place, it's a lot of fun. Do you feel that? Um Supercars or Vesco, as it was then. The Vesco's. Um, I mean, I think that, that there were elements there that acted incredibly badly. The way in which your team, Brightec, was was hampered. It was shocking. You know, yeah, it was, it was, just it was, it was, it was ridiculous. Like, there's a reason why it doesn't happen anymore. Yeah. You know, I, the worst, the worst part I felt was, you know, and I, and I suffered from it. I suffered from those rules from. 2003 through to 2008, yeah. 2007. Because when I was at Team Brock, we didn't do one test day all year because we were linked to HRT. So we weren't even, we weren't even allowed to go testing and we're have, trying to battle in a championship with Ambrose and we were running a VX and, and HRT were running a VY anyway. You know, it was like, but we're still not allowed to go and do one... Yeah. test day and we're a brand new team new guys we, we didn't do any testing for 2003 or 4 and then I moved to Pro Drive and I've got two rookie drivers at Brytec and they weren't allowed to do a test just, day uh, Richard. Nah, Steve 
Owen and uh, Matthew White. Yep, yep, sorry, yeah. And so they weren't allowed to do a test day all year. Yep. Because it was linked to me at ProDrive. Oh, yeah, of course, you would have told them everything. And it's like, yes. <laughs> number one, you're hampering a brand new team and sponsor in the category and two rookie drivers. Yeah. It's like, what do you think? You know, it was just a complete misunderstanding of what information you could actually benefit from. Mm-hmm. I remember being at the Brightech launch and you were down I wasn't the, even there. No, I know, I know, yeah. and I, I felt enormously sad at that, oh, and I just thought it was disgraceful. Yeah, no, your mum and dad being there, and you were down the road at a cafe, I think. Yeah, it was yeah. it was ridiculous. I mean, you know, like like I said, it was. I felt worse for you know the fact that we had two rookie drivers. Yeah, and they weren't even allowed to do a test day, and you know that that impacted them like thousands of times more than what advantage. ProDrive was ever going to get out of any information that Brightech could give them, which would be negligible. Have you got any idea, and I don't need to necessarily name people, but have you got any idea as to where the enforcement of those sort of rules came from? Oh, I think it's, it's motorsport politics. You know, it's, it's, it's one of those things that, you know, if whenever anyone thinks some team's getting a slight leg up, you know, they just lobby and, you know, it, it, it came from, no doubt it came from Walkinshaw starting to run four cars. Right. And then the powers that be, the teams the teams are putting pressure on the powers that be, like, you know, control this before it gets too much. And, you know, there was a limit put on a maximum of four cars can be run by any one yeah. organisation. And, and then it just, yeah, it creates all these grey areas and, you know, so what, what actually links them? You know, is it the equipment, the drivers, the team owners? the And so then it just becomes blurry. And, and I think Calvin O'Reilly was there at the time and he he was the one sort of enforcing a lot of those rules. But I feel like it, it comes from different pressure from different organisations. And, you know, if they see me starting my own team and they think, oh, you know, that, that, that sponsor could have been ours and I'm driving for ProDrive and I'm competitive, like they, there's just people that want to nobble... There's quite situations. a dramatic difference between, say, and you know it far better than me, but between the American system and the European or, you know, FIA. You know, in the American system where uh, those wheels, are they're not legal, but I know somebody who could fix them, so they could be. Whereas in the FIA, it's, can't run those. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, in Australia, I think, Australia's always been a little bit unique as well. Like, I feel like, yeah, you know, there's a lot of stuff that flies under the radar, legality-wise, in Europe, that gets picked up in Australia. Yeah. And we've seen that so many times with international series that come to Australia. I think our officials are very good, yeah. and they're very good at you know enforcing the rules. And I think Australian motorsport does an awesome job containing costs, and that's that's been the the strength of supercars is, is over the years to contain the costs. You know, and even though I feel like they're out of control at the moment in supercars and have been for probably the last 10 years compared to what sponsorship you can generate, I feel like anywhere else in the world, that'd still be four times as much. So, and the, and the category's still going, you know, one way or another. Yeah. It's, the, the costs are still contained within reach. Whereas, you know, you look at DTM, World Sports Cars, um, the costs 
just keep blowing out and then they have a they reinvent it and then have another go so i think supercars has always done a good job of keeping the costs under control as much as they can whether whether they can do it to the next level again where we have sponsorship that can employ professional drivers like we used to that's that's another thing yeah well it's interesting i mean it would seem that gen 3 would be the way to go with the regs on it given internationally that that category is so strong anyway um getting back to your career you you started with a pair of brothers and ended with a pair of brothers um stones to jones yep yeah and you know i it was one of those things where i was had done my couple of years at brytech you know we I ended up back at Stones running the Green yep. Falcon that year and I qualified pole at Phillip Island and Brad Jones came up and said, mate, if you ever want to take a break from the team ownership side, give me a call. And so, you know, the year after was, you know, looking difficult, you know, with Fujitsu moving to Gary Rogers for two cars. And so I was like, gave Brad a call and we did a deal, Homebush weekend, to drive for, for Brad. What year um, was that? That was 2009. They just picked up Trading Post as a sponsor. And so, yeah, I, I did a couple of laps in the car at Oran Park on a ride day and then drove for them in 2010. It was sort of a funny time because I had, you know, Phil Keat, who was still at Pro Drive, phoned me up and, you know, he was a little bit sick of that joint. Um, and you know, it wasn't working out there. And he said, you know, what am I, what was I doing? And I said, I'm going to Brad's, is he interested? And it was sort of a great opportunity for Brad to to sort of pick up an engineer that could once again work with me and help the team progress. So, yeah, um, yeah so once again, it was, it was just a good, like we were talking about what before, makes... the teams that I like, you know, that was an awesome period at BJR because yeah. I saw the team improved so much over the next year and a half and then we won, you know, in Perth. What, what makes um, not just an engineer that you can work with, but what makes it a good engineer? I mean, obviously Phil's come from a different background because, I mean, you know, he started out with Bob Riley and Rally Art yeah. in Sydney and, and then goes off in the dirt play for a long time. Um, I, I mean, what I've always found works well with engineers is they've got, they've got to ask the right question. And, and, the, and, and when they're asking questions... They've got to know what they're going to do with that information. And Phil was like, Phil came into supercars in 2003 to Team Brock, and he'd only ever done anything on dirt, and you know he hadn't been to any of the circuits before. Um, so you know we would. That was probably the time when I first learned. You know we were doing pre-briefs and debriefs before and after every race meeting. We got to the circuit, and because Phil didn't know any of the circuits, we started doing track walks. Now everyone does track walks, but we did it that first year, so you know Phil could know where the track goes. Yeah, because <laughs> he hadn't been to the track, so I was like, "Here's where the track goes. Here's what we normally suffer from on this corner." He sort of got to learn some of the idiosyncrasies of the circuits, and like I said, it was all about him learning the circuits, learning the problems with the car. Like, I, did, I spent a couple of days with him. We went through all of the circuits and, you know, what were the difficulties with each circuit. And So he, he was very good at asking all the right questions and 
Meticulous. Soaked up all that information and, and then all of the reporting and data and processes that he put in place. I hadn't seen that before with any of the engineers in Australia. We're talking with uh, Jason Bright on Inside Supercars. We'll be back in a minute. For those nights when one drink with the girls turns into a bottle, but you need your car for brunch the next day, there's pickup. Or at Friday work drinks, where you don't want to leave your car with expensive tools at the pub, there's pickup. Don't miss out on the fun. Get a pickup. Simply book on our app and we'll pick you up to drive you and your car home. Two drivers arrive, one drives you home in your car and the other driver follows. Download the pickup app today. That's PKUP and wake up worry-free. Welcome back to Inside Supercars. I'm with Jason Bright. And Jason, you were talking before about uh, Phil Keed and it's quite extraordinary that at this moment of time there's at least 10, 15 engineers who are sort of like the major profile moves um, you know, Couchy, Wes McDougall, uh, Alison McVean, you know, just everywhere it's happening. That the relationship between engineer and driver is something that is unique in a race team, isn't it? Oh, I mean, it's, it's very important, you know. Uh, there's times when the relationship with the engineer, you know, it, it's, and when it's working well, you know, you're always making the right decisions, you know, you're arriving at the circuit with the right setup, you know exactly what you need to change on the car for qualifying and, you know, it, it works extremely well and then, you know, when it's not working, it's, you know, it's very detrimental and, you know, I think there was a period where the driver, you know, the driver's certainly, you know, an integral part and, and it went through a period I saw in the early 2000s where all the teams had to have the right drivers and and then it went through a period where now now they're chasing engineers because you need good engineers as well. Um, you know, I remember late nineties. You needed you know if you had a good engineer, a, sorry, a good car, a good engine, or a good chassis, you could be in the top five. And then you went through a period where you needed a good car and a good engine, or a good driver and a good engine, or a good driver and a good car, and then you could be in the top five. And then you needed all three to be in the top five. And then you needed all three plus a good engineer, and then all four of those plus, you know, a good team, and you know, it sort of, and then you need a good pit stops and all of the other ingredients, and it sort of, it's just as, as a category gets more, in, more, competitive, you're looking for that next, step, you know, yeah. the next improvement, and engineers, are a very important, like you look at Ludo and the success that he's had with you know the teams he's been with and drivers you know it shows the value of having a, a, a good engineer. Um, one of the things of course you've had good success at Bathurst and you've won races in the series strategy is one of the other tools of uh, an engineer not just to make the car fast but also when we're going to be fast how do we go about it is that something that you enjoy in that aspect? Of it? Uh, yeah well it's uh, enjoyed the whole strategy side a lot you know and, and um, you know, I feel like it's something that lacks in supercars at the moment. You know, I feel like there was there was periods when strategy was a much more important factor. Whereas, yeah. you know, the the tyres at the moment are too hard. They you know they last a full stint of a tank yeah. the fuel way too easily, and and you know everyone just pits at the start of the window. You know, and, and when there's more degradation and you know, it, it opens up the strategy a lot more. Whereas, you know, yeah, it, it frustrates me. I think F1, I, I don't miss a single section session of F1, and you know, I, F1's got the mix right at the moment. You know, they they got you know the tire degradations the right amount, 
that you can do different strategies. You know, there's um, whereas you know supercars, there needs to be another factor in there that you can use some different strategies <coughs> because everyone just pits early in the window normally. Yeah. And the track, you know, the, the best races of last season were when there was high degradation. Eastern Creek when they didn't have enough tyres. First round, best racing of the year. The bend, for a different reason, only because the tyres were failing, great. Yeah. You know, but it was random, but it made for, for a good racing weekend. And But, you know, Eastern Creek, high degradation, end of summer was, was the best, you know, the best racing, but and best because there was some strategy. You know, you saw Percat able to sort of race, catch up and pass because of strategy. It's and that, and that, that didn't happen the rest of the year. Interesting because, of course, Brad's... Uh, Brad's place has long been known as a, somewhere that, you know, if there's a strategy war on, that they're up there in the top top end of it, aren't they? Yeah, yeah, and, and it's because they, you know, they they think about it a lot, and I feel like those weekends when there is that opportunity for some strategy because of the tyre degradation, the effort that they put into it, because they've been forced to, at times, to think of different strategies, they do a good job of it. You know, and teams that are used to just qualifying in the front, racing the front, they don't do a good job of it because they take the the least risky option. Mm. But on a weekend where there's a high degradation, that catches them out, and that's when you know we've you know seen BJR shine on many occasions because they they do think about that stuff well. Your driving career um, when. You stopped driving full time in the series. I expected you to stay on more as a co-driver. Yeah, and I, I sort of, I didn't put a lot of effort into trying to. Like you know, I, I sort of didn't get out there and knock on everyone's door and try and make it happen. And I only sort of ended up with the drive at, at Team Eighteen because um, Matty Brabham had a sort of pretty tough time converting. But to be honest. You know, when I got in that car at Sandown, I, I can understand why. You know, it was it was a long way off, yeah. and it took a fair bit of convincing that there was something not right with it. But by you know by the end of Gold Coast, it was a top six car, and then that set up Holdsworth qualified fourth for both races at Newcastle yeah. with that same setup from the Gold Coast. So it wasn't far off. It was like it, there was just there was a bit of a philosophy mistake there. But that, that's what happens, you know, they've sort of went off on a different tangent. And, you know, I was pretty happy with the improvements we made over those couple of rounds. And, you know, Lee's, Lee's whole career was in the balance. Like, everyone thought he was, a, you know, he was qualifying at the back every race. And then all of a sudden he qualified top four at the last two races of the year and pops up with a Tickford drive. Yeah. You know, so um, it shows you how quickly you can fall out of favour if, if you know, if, if the team's going in the wrong direction. Yeah, and also resurrect things if they're... Yeah, right. Mm. So you're no longer driving and you decided, well, you weren't chasing a, a, a co-drive as such? Yeah. <laughs> you know, I, I, I watch Bathurst and, like, yeah, it'd be great to be out there, but I, I, I don't enjoy... You know, don't particularly enjoy being a co-driver. Like, mm-hmm. it's, you know, it's... It's hard work as a co-driver. You know, I, I love going there as a lead driver. And particularly when there's no testing, for instance. Yeah. Just it's, very tough. Yeah, you know, it, it is very tough. You know, if you're not sort of in supercars all year, they're quite a quirky car. And, and to be honest, they changed a lot in that 
12 months that I hadn't got in a car. But yeah, it was... I, I, I certainly wasn't rushing out to try and find a seat as a co-driver. You know, I, I, I really... When the TCR thing was coming along, you know, that appealed to me because it was like... You know, new category. Yeah, like new category, fun cars to drive, global success as a category and financially a good package. Oh, I think it's yeah, it's a, yeah. you know, it's a, I think the category has a really good fit with the car market. You know, it, it um you know, the guys sort of putting it all together, you know, were into in, in it to, to to do a really good job and um but I think the racing's great. Yeah. yeah and the racing's great once again because the tires are good. They've got some degradation, but they're a good quality tyre that you can fire it down the inside and make a bit of a mistake and you, you know, your day's not ruined. So the tyres make for good racing. The cars are quirky and a little bit, you know, they move around a bit and, you know, there's mistakes. They're all, all the brands have got different strengths and weaknesses. So they punch a big hole in the air for the amount of um, grunt they've got. So the, you get slipstreaming and... Yeah, I, like, it was just good, fun racing. Okay, you know. so you had a full season 2019. Obviously, 20 things didn't happen. Oh, I didn't didn't quite sort of put a budget together. For I, I, I was very close at, you know, one stage and thought I had something and it sort of fell over a couple of weeks before the Grand Prix. And I was sort of thinking, sitting there a couple of weeks before the Grand Prix, couldn't believe it was, it was going ahead with coronavirus starting to kick off anyway. And... Um, in hindsight, I'm glad I didn't go like putting a huge amount of effort into trying to make something happen for 2020. With all of the uncertainty and the fact that you know yeah. didn't get off the ground, it would have been a pretty tough year to keep a sponsor interested. And so I, you know, I wasn't that fast. I've had a whole year to sort of concentrate on my business and and you know I, I haven't even sort of thought about racing. You know, watched every F1 practice and qualifying and race and that you know I got my fix through that um and you know I want to race again I I, I definitely you know if I you know when I've got more time I think I can go out there and have another crack in TCR or some GT stuff but I'm not you know it's not my you know it's not my living anymore so I'm not going to lose any sleep over it if I don't make it happen for, right. do, if I don't do much or this year or next year. You know okay, I mean? we'll talk about um, Task Force in a minute, your business, but first of all maybe we'll just go back to the race of a thousand years, because um, I, I didn't go to it and, and know very little about, about it, yeah. but I know that you featured uh, big in a panos over there, so tell us how, how it happened. Uh, so I was, you know, I was racing in America that year, like I said, and I, you know, because I knew the race was happening, I knew a couple of guys at Panos. I think Paul Ryan was there at the time, and I was sort of, you know, it's like I'd really love to be in one of the cars for the race of a thousand years. And um, you know, it was, I guess, the Adelaide, you know, it was going to be good to have a bit of an Australian flavour as well. And and I can't remember all of the details how it came about, but you know, obviously Murph and myself and Brad Moore lined up in the the one Panos, and it was a good paying job. Oh, I don't. I can't even remember whether I got paid for that. To be honest, I, oh, okay. I doubt it. I doubt I did. You know, yeah. I think it was. Yeah. Anyway, it was a couple of years ago. Yeah. But it was. I think it was just. It was all about, you know, driving a pretty cool car. You know. Had you driven in the states? I drove the car for a test day at Sebring. Okay. 
uh, with with Murph there and they're pretty wild looking machines. It was a beast. Yeah. Like, you know, it was it had a lot of power. I don't know what it had, probably six hundred and fifty yeah. horsepower. A heap of torques is a big big engine. It had carbon brakes, so it was you know, and it was it stopped. Yeah. It was yeah, it was a bit of a beast. Very strange to drive, and you know the way you were you were basically sitting on the rear tire. Brabham like he was a gun in it. You know, he'd driven it so much that he knew what to expect on on a, on a street circuit like Adelaide, and yeah. So he, you know, he was. So it was just the three of you. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. And there there was two cars in the team. The other, the other car though was, I think Magnuson was in it. Yeah. Um, it, it was it was a new car though. We were still driving the Roadster or whatever they called it. Yep. Whereas this other thing was was a bit racier, but not as fast. <laughs> it was yeah, but like it was very it was. A, Weird time because we were, you know, when we when we went there and tested, obviously Don Panos was larger than life. He was meeting us for the test, and you know he owned the circuit because he he just bought Sebring. He owned the race team. He owned the motel that we were staying at. He owned, he owned the winery that, you know, that they were drinking at dinner. Like it was, it was just crazy. You know, it was like the amount of money, and he, you know, he was fantastic for sports car racing in America, buying, you know, Road Atlanta and Mossport, all the, all the great circuits over there and the series and, you know, but he was a, you know, a very interesting guy. I mean, we were waiting for him, for him at dinner and he couldn't land his plane because the landing gear hadn't gone down. Yeah. And he was circling the airport and just a, a very, very crazy time. So um, TCR is still on the agenda, and it's you know might be a little bit away yet. Um, this coming uh, weekend is the opening round of, of 2021, and uh, I'm going down for that. I'm looking forward to seeing a good field of cars on Simmons Plains. Yep. I first went there in '72 uh, with 5,000 uh, as a mechanic. Yep. Well, I thought I was. And let's just talk now about Task Force. Um, you have long been somebody who manages their own career, both obviously on track and off it. Tell us about how Task Force came about setting it up and what it does. Uh, well, it came about, you know, just it was an idea I had back before I was went to America in 98. You know, I was chasing sponsorship and, you know, looking at the sort of industries that, you know, weren't really using their buying power very well and, and the trade and service industry was like that so I wanted to put something together that you know grouped together plumbers and electricians and handymen and carpenters and all of the different trades in Australia and you know look at the products that they buy and do deals for them you know so a bit of a buying group you know generate work for them and you know what ways could we sort of work together to you know, save the money or make the money. And that's sort of where it came from. You know, we, we started off as more of a membership group, paying members and we were generating work for them. But it's sort of evolved now to, you know, through our software that we've developed. We do a lot of work for manufacturers. We, we're, we're starting to do work in real estate where our network of tradies around the country, of which, you know, there's sort of you know, around 3,000 active guys that we sort of do work for or generate work for regularly where those guys do the work for the manufacturers to handle their warranty work or installation or assembly or um, or in the real estate case the maintenance on you know rental properties so you know we now you know that that's 
the core of our business is you know using the software to handle those work requests and and um, the notifications and the completion of that work for for you know, all of those different industries. So you're an entrepreneur, and innovation is the way in which you've got to you in in building this business. Yeah, well, and that's one of those things where you know I feel like I use a lot of what I've learned in motorsport, the development of trying to make things better. You know, whether it's trying to make a car, you know, better at doing something or trying to find a new way to generate sponsorship or, you know, what, you know, constantly thinking of different ways to pitch different ideas to sponsors. You know, it's sort of no different to, to what I do now. It's like, you know, trying to come up with a better way through our software or through a process that simplifies something for a manufacturer to handle their warranty. Um, you know, doing deals with manufacturers or retailers to have their products exclusively installed or um, sold through our network. You know, that it's sort of a lot of the same things I feel. It's, you know, it's what I enjoy. And now you've got two kids. Either on the go kart kid? Not at the moment. No, no. Although Lenny, him? Lenny has sort of mentioned you know an interest in motorsport only recently, but it seems to correlate with when he's with my dad. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, which is not really surprising. <laughs> no, no, he comes back and yeah, you know, we we then have to watch a bit of motorsport. But he, yeah, he's and I I wouldn't have a problem either way. I mean, I think they're both they're, the the good thing with both of them is they're both fearless and you know love just being outdoors and you know they ride their bikes everywhere. You know they they they're very they're both very athletic. And you know that's the main thing. You know where where they sort of go with that. You know, okay. I'm not fast. Now um, you, you said TCR is not off the agenda, but it would be someone like MPC ran the cars for you. Oh, most likely, yeah. I mean, you know, I like so uh, sort of see what happens the next sort of twelve months. You know, I I think you know I'd like to do some racing again just for you know enjoyment more yep. than anything. Yeah. Um, I think I can still be competitive like we were in 2019. So, you know, I, it would just be a matter of putting together the right ingredients to make sure we can go out there and have some fun and okay. be competitive. But yeah, I, you know, I, I sort of, I'm well and truly busy enough here and, and you know, I, I feel like if I concentrate on, on everything that we're doing at Task Force at the moment, you know, then I'll have a bit more time in a year or so to go and have a bit of fun. Can I ask sort of what your turnover is? Yeah. Yeah, in your oh, business. It's, it's growing all the time. You know, right. Where, you know, I think we, we probably spent the first six years finding our feet, you know, where we're now, you know, well and truly into seven figures, right. you know, per yeah. annum. And, um, and it's just, but like, it's growing all the time with some of the stuff that we're doing at the moment, it'll, you know, escalate. Yeah, and, and of course right. that that 99% of your workforce is on contract to do a job, not yeah. in, not we don't employees. Have, we don't have a lot of lot of overheads. You know, we've got yeah. very limited staff here in the office to manage that, and that that's that's all about getting the software to do what it needs to do, so that you don't have to pick up the phone every time. And you know, you've got a lot of people in doing warranty work previously that were constantly on the phone, finding guys, you know, chasing up information, whereas our software does all of that for them now, and 
that's what we needed to do as well. Otherwise, if we've got people sitting here managing all of that, our, the prices go through the roof for everyone. Well, thank you very much, Jason Wright, for joining us on Inside Supercars. We look forward to hearing another chapter of your motor racing career and of your business in future years. See how we go. Look forward to it. Thank you. Inside Supercars is produced by Thunder Media. Tune in next time for more or lock in the podcast on your iTunes or mobile device. Search Inside Supercars. The views expressed on Inside Supercars, including the panellists and guests, do not reflect the views of the network, Thunder Media or Sport Radio. Any publication or rebroadcast of the show without the expressed written permission of Thunder Media is strictly prohibited.